Good morning and welcome. I'm Todd Zawicki, uh, and thank you uh, for coming today. Um, and welcome to this uh, forum on promoting fintech innovation and consumer choice, the role of regulatory sandboxes. And I just want to say, especially, I, I appreciate being here. This is my first event uh, under my new title. Um, as a senior fellow of the Cato Institute, I joined Cato here as a senior fellow in November. Um, and the first thing I wanted to do was to do a program on fintech and innovation, um, and in particular do one with today's featured guest, uh, Paul Watkins. Um, in my view, uh, financial innovation is one of the leading moral imperatives of our time. Um, and I've been very distressed over the post-financial uh, crisis era of the impact of Dodd-Frank and other regulations, which dramatically um, reduced financial inclusion. It was a great barrier to financial inclusion. Um, and um, financial inclusion matters for people's lives. It's the, the road to a better life for a lot of people. Um, and fintech, I think, is an important part of the solution to financial inclusion, as well as innovation um, and promoting competition and consumer choice in markets. Uh, the United States, as we will talk about, has uh, fallen behind the rest of the world with respect to, uh, to fintech. And I think today um, we get to talk about an exciting new proposal that's coming out from the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that is uh, going, to, to going to reform that. Um, our, our featured guest today is uh, Paul Watkins, who's the Director of the Office of Innovation for the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection. Uh, I've known Paul for a very long time, and I cannot think of anybody who is better or would be the perfect candidate to take over the Office of Innovation at the CFPB. And I say that not only because Paul um, has established himself as a leader in this field, um, he has actually had experience in this during his time in the Attorney General Office in uh, Arizona. Paul took the lead on creating a regulatory sandbox proposal in Arizona um, and in many ways been the leading policymaker um, uh, on this area over the last couple of years. I think Paul is also especially well-suited, and one of the things that I think is especially felicitous about Paul being in this position is Paul comes from a background of a consumer protection background. He was the head of the Civil Litigation Division at the Office of uh, the Attorney General in Arizona, where he worked on issues of consumer fraud, antitrust, and civil rights. And even before I knew Paul as one of the leaders in financial innovation, I knew Paul as one of the leaders of uh, consumer protection um, and consumer protection enforcement and his leadership in that role in the Arizona Attorney General Office in looking out for consumers and focusing on remedying real harm to consumers and being very innovative in a way of protecting consumers in ways that actually help consumers uh, without sort of falling into a lot of the traps of old consumer protection law. He's got, before that, he had a substantial career in private practice um, at both um, Covington and Burling in San Francisco and Simpson Thatcher Bartlett in Palo Alto. Um, he came to uh, DC this summer 
Um, and Paul is going to speak for about 20 minutes about his proposal. And then what we're going to do is we're going to have a roundtable discussion. Um, at that point, I'll introduce our other uh, participants. He'll talk for 20 minutes. He will be sticking around, he'll be participating in the roundtable discussion, so you'll have a chance to ask any questions of Paul and the rest of the panel um, at, the, uh, at the end. So I am thrilled to, uh, to introduce as our, our guest today to talk about what the CFPB is doing in the area of fintech and innovation. Paul Watkins, thanks for being here, Paul. Thank you very much, Professor Zwicky, and thank you to the Cato Institute for having me to speak. Um, I will just get right into the presentation after I give you my disclaimer. You can't have a talk about consumer protection <laughs> without a disclaimer. Mine is, these are my views. They're not necessarily legal advice, and they are not necessarily the views of the Bureau. I'm here to talk about innovation and consumer protection as it relates to these specific proposals that we've introduced. So let me give you an outline of my talk. I want to talk about why facilitating innovation is part of consumer protection and why we focus on regulation when we're thinking about facilitating innovation, then talk about these specific regulatory tools. And if there's time, I'll touch on the importance of coordination. Let me get to the first question. What protects consumers? I think it's worth thinking about this question because there are a number of different answers. The first answer that might come to your mind is enforcement. Government enforcement clearly protects consumers, both in obtaining restitution that can be distributed to consumers that are harmed and establishing the right incentives, establishing deterrence so that wrongful acts are discouraged because at some point they will be prosecuted. But if I were to ask you, what steps do you take in your daily life to protect yourself? What do you think is protecting you? I'm sure government enforcement is a backstop. It's relevant. But I imagine if you're like me, you're taking a number of other steps too. If you're assessed a late fee on your credit card, even if you owe that fee, I suspect at least some of you call the credit card company and say, hey, if you don't waive this fee, I'm not going to do business with you. And that's because those of us in this room are in a privileged position. We have options. Uh, we have access to these products. And because companies know we have those options, we are protected from actions that are non-jurisdictional. We're protected from actions where a government enforcer could not necessarily get a court to require the behavior that we're seeking as consumers. So when we think about what protects consumers, I think it's, it's again important to recognize the different categories, enforcement, but also options and access. And if we break down options and access, what produces those things? I think a lot of it comes down to innovation. Innovation drives competition. Competition drives options, options, solve these non-jurisdictional questions that relate to some of the points that Professor Zewicki started about. Uh, the Bureau recently did a study showing there are 45 million consumers without a credit score. Uh, there's a significant percentage of the American market that is unbanked or underbanked. Even when, even when somebody has access to a bank, they may not have access to the products 
they want. And this was uh, a particularly acute problem 15 or 20 years ago. If you wanted to use bank services, you had to go to a retail branch. So people talked about banking deserts. You can't always get to a branch. Even if you had a branch, it was probably open from about 9.30 in the morning to 4.30 in the afternoon. This is particularly problematic if you're on an hourly salary. That means you're literally paying a fee to go do banking because you have to get up, give up salary. Now, I don't care how aggressive of a consumer protection enforcer you are. If you say, I'm going to find the most favorable jurisdiction, I'm going to sue every single bank, you still would not get to where we are today, where folks have 24-7 access to banking services in the palm of their hand, through their smartphone, in the comfort of your home. That is something that innovation drives. It's something that enforcement could not have achieved. So it's important to recognize the role of innovation when we're talking about these complex problems of providing access that we all want to solve. Now, what I've just described, the process of innovation leading to access, is not, uh, it's not some sort of uh, libertarian message from the lips of uh, John Galt. This is, uh, this is straight out of Dodd-Frank. Uh, <laughs> If you look at the purposes and objectives of the Bureau, uh, let me start with the objectives. One of them is to facilitate innovation. Another is to review regulations. The purposes of the Bureau, ensuring that markets are competitive and that consumers have access. This process is laid out in the statute. And in fact, this argument reminds me of something that I've read before in a uh, substantial green book called Consumer Credit and the American Economy which is ubiquitous on the desks of uh, regulators in the federal government and in state government, thanks to uh, some attorney general education programs. And one of the arguments in that book is that both competition and government play a role in protecting consumers. And of course, one of the authors of that book is Professor Zwicky, who expressed skepticism about Dodd-Frank in my intro and has previously. But there's such a tight correlation between his argument and the purposes of the Bureau, that I wonder if this skepticism is an act. And in fact, Professor Zwicky <laughs> is the secret author of Dodd-Frank. So let me talk about regulatory tools. Why do we focus on this area? Aside from the fact that it's mentioned in the statute, we know that when someone's bringing innovation into financial services, they're facing a multiplicity of actors. They're facing a lot of regulations coming from different sources, from federal agencies, from state banking commissioners, from state attorneys general. And the combination of these, thing, these things creates uncertainty. And uncertainty does not treat, uh, treat people equally. Uncertainty has a disparate impact on the good actor, on the person who's trying to figure out what the rule is. The bad actor doesn't care. The bad actor can proceed in the face of uncertainty. It doesn't change his behavior very much. But the good actor is deterred, and that is a problem when your priority is consumer protection because you want the good actors to be successful. So this is why we're focusing on the regulatory tools that I would like to discuss Next, there are three tools, as I mentioned before, no action letter program, product sandbox, and disclosure sandbox. What I'd like to do is talk about the purpose behind each of these tools and then discuss the, uh, the terms. And I just need to emphasize that these are all proposals. Uh, to give you a, a snapshot of where we are status-wise, the comment period on the trial disclosure uh, program has closed. So we're in the process of finalizing that policy. 
The comment period on no action letter and product sandbox is still open. That closes on February 11th. Part of the reason why we're doing these talks is to encourage people to file comments. The no action letter first. Why do we want a no action letter program? Again, this addresses the uncertainty problem. It's a complement to enforcement. Enforcement looks at a sphere of activity and says this is what you can't do. This is, this is prohibited. A no action letter says we're not taking action in the exercise of our discretion. We're not going to act in this area. It's sending a signal on the type of activity that will be permitted. If you're familiar with federal regulatory agencies, you know this is very commonly used uh, most prominently by the SEC, also by the CFTC, by a number of other agencies. The Bureau, in fact, has had a no-action letter policy for two years. One letter has been issued, and it took a substantial amount of time to issue it, depending on how you count, one to two years. And uh, some folks were disappointed with the length of that process and also with the content of the letter that was issued. So our focus has been on creating a vehicle that will be a little more attractive and more useful. With the product sandbox, which is the, uh, covers the broadest scope of activities um, of, the, of the two sandboxes that we've created. The purpose of a sandbox, again, is to facilitate innovation in a highly regulated space. When you're bringing a new innovation, uh, there's, the odds of encountering uncertainty are heightened. Uh, it also increases agency knowledge regarding emerging technology. Agencies often begin to understand a product after something's gone wrong, after the consumer has been harmed. Then we come in and we say, well, we'd better really focus on this and figure out how it was supposed to be working and what went wrong, and so we can fix it doing for, uh, going forward. The advantage of creating an attractive regulatory structure like this is it requires the agency to understand innovation on the front end. And we think that that can have uh, a, a very beneficial effect. Of course, agencies are always trying to understand technology as it's coming to market, but this is, is an additional incentive uh, for, us, for us to do so. The final policy is a disclosure sandbox. And the idea here is that our disclosure statutes were designed for a world that is very different from the world that we see today. If TILA went into effect, in the summer of 1969, July of 1969. It was overshadowed somewhat by the moon landing and by Woodstock. Uh, but this was a long time ago. Uh, technology has changed dramatically, particularly with mobile delivery of devices, which not only means that the content should be modified, but there may be new opportunities. Technology may be providing an opportunity for us to communicate information in a way that is more relevant and more helpful for the consumer. This policy has existed at the Bureau for a few years. Uh, has, we've never issued a waiver, however, which conflicts with the statute to some extent, which says our standards shall be designed to encourage applications. Uh, and, and since we haven't done any, maybe we haven't been encouraging them. Uh, now, as I go through the terms, there are a few themes I want to focus on. Clarity regarding the terms of the tools efficient approval process, and then fraud protection. So as we're incentivizing innovation, we are not increasing fraud. Uh, and on the, the first comparison I'd like to do is between the no action letter program and the disclosure and product sandbox. The key differences here, a no action letter is a statement from the Bureau. The Bureau is not taking action. It's not a statement by other federal agencies uh, it, 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 uh, lawsuits can still be filed under federal statutes by private actors. By contrast, 
under the sandbox, this creates a safe harbor. Section 1032E of Dodd-Frank, which authorizes the disclosure sandbox, says that uh, there is a, a safe harbor when the Bureau issues a disclosure waiver. That means another agency cannot bring an enforcement action based on that statute. Private lawsuit cannot be filed based on that statute. Similarly, when uh, the Bureau has been entrusted with the enforcement authority of a statute and is issuing an approval or an exemption under a rule, that means a lawsuit cannot be filed. So these are broader protections for the disclosure in the product sandbox than under the no action letter. However, the scope under which these protections can be granted is narrower. Disclosures is obviously disclosure requirements. For the product sandbox, there are only a few statutes that give us this authority. Truth in Lending Act, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, and Electronic Funds Transfer Act, as well as rules that are not mirroring statutory requirements. So courts have said, when Congress tells an agency to issue rules, it's also giving the authority to grant exemptions unless the rule is reflecting a statutory requirement, in which case the agency cannot grant an exemption from that because we can't exempt uh, from a statute. So that's, that's the relief that's being provided under these programs. Under the no action letter, consistent with no action letter programs by other agencies, there's no data sharing, there's no time requirement. Different from the sandboxes, we do require data sharing, in some cases reports, in some cases notification, and there is a two year time limit. On the no action letter, we require notification of material changes to information that was submitted if this is going to increase the risk of consumer harm. Uh, no action letters are also subject to supervision by the Bureau. In the disclosure and product sandbox, uh, we allow the opportunity for extension. So it's a two-year period, but if successful results exist, those can be extended, particularly if the results are going to lead to some sort of rule change. Uh, and, and here, because we want to incentivize people to participate, we need to show that there's some sort of, uh, of, of long-term avenue for success. All of the policies have revocation criteria, essentially failing to comply with the terms, uh, leading to some sort of uh, material tangible harm to consumers, or a determination by the Bureau that the legal basis has been changed by statute or a Supreme Court decision. The application process is similar for all the programs. 60-day review period for complete applications. We're gonna, our review is going to focus on risk to consumers. Third parties can apply. This is an important point because there are resources. This may be, it requires resources to apply, to uh, interact with an agency. So we want groups to be able to come to the uh, Bureau and say, we, we would like uh, a no action letter for this type of activity. Let's f agree on as many terms as possible. And then later on, we can fill in the names of the firms and any firm specific information that we need. To, uh, to grant these letters. Business information, which is a FOIA exemption, uh, will remain confidential. And then approval is by the Bureau. It's been delegated to the Office of Innovation. We did that because we have a nice 
innovation title that uh, people feel comfortable, we think, uh, approaching us. So what are we doing to prevent fraud? As we're promoting innovation, we don't want to be encouraging or opening the door to fraud. A key aspect of fraud prevention in this area that is often overlooked is the self-selection. Applicants have to approach their primary regulator with the authority to impose very significant fines and say, here's what I'm doing. Let me describe it in detail so you understand it completely. Bad actors don't want to do that. A lot of people who are even uncertain don't want to do that. This is a very significant protection uh, that I think will do a lot of work to prevent fraud. Uh, and the, as I mentioned, our review focuses on risk to consumers. We have duties to report and notification. Non-compliance voids relief. That's a very significant penalty. It means we can come back in and bring in enforcement action. We also have revocation criteria based on consumer harm. Now, you may say this is very all well and good for your agency, but one of your slides pointed out there were 10 federal agencies, all these states. Uh, what are you going to do about that? Uh, and this, I think, is a very long-term pro uh, process of coordination among regulators. Probably the way forward is for regulators to be developing tools that work within their jurisdiction and then coordinating the use of those tools. So every policy that we've issued has a coordination component that notes we are looking to coordinate, particularly with states and also federal agencies. Uh, we're also part of GFIN, which I can talk about later. Uh, there are a number of federal agencies which have innovation offices, so there are avenues for us to coordinate. What are the next steps? Again, sticking with coordination. It was a focus of uh, Treasury's report. There are state, uh, state sandboxes. There's one in Arizona that I'm familiar with. There have been a number of others proposed, one in Wyoming. I would expect to see this legislative session, a number of states uh, proposing those. The way forward also includes monitoring new sources of consumer harm, particularly related to data security and data privacy. So the takeaways from my talk uh, that I hope I've demonstrated, innovation is part of consumer protection. The Bureau has proposed policies to facilitate innovation while preventing fraud. And making these successful is going to require coordination between state and federal agencies. I've got some contact information that I will just leave up here. This is, this is our uh, website. That's our email address. And uh, you're welcome to contact us. Thank you again for having me. And I look forward to the panel discussion and any questions you might have. Thank you very much. Complex uh, proposal, um, and I think one of the things that's ex exciting about it is uh, the options you create to both uh, the no action letter policy as opposed to the sandbox policy, and um, sort of thinking through what the options are with uh, with respect to that. Uh, to talk about that and some of the other issues, we have a, a, a great panel here today to discuss it. A, a group with a lot of different perspectives. Um, that I think will um, that overlap and are also very unique. Our, the first person we'll hear from uh, is Eric Mogulnicki. Eric is a partner at Covington and Burling in Washington, D.C. I've known Eric for quite some time. He's got an extensive background, not only in private practice, but he also is chief of staff um, to Senator Kennedy uh, for several years. 
Uh, Eric is really my go-to guy uh, in, on, the, on the bar side, on the practicing lawyer side, for understanding how regulations and rules uh, operate with the CFPB, and he's recognized as one of the handful of leading CFPB attorneys uh, uh, in, in, in the country. Uh, next, I'll be talking to Conan French. Uh, Conan is a senior advisor at the Institute of International Finance. IIF is a global research and advocacy in association for the financial industry with close to 450 members from 70 countries. Conan has a fascinating background, both in the public and private sector. He was a partner at Open Revolution, uh, where he launched a number of mobile uh, money uh, platforms. He also had an extensive background at USAID, where he was involved in um, um, micro-lending and microfinance uh, in particular, um, and has uh, a, a fascinating global perspective on this that we'll hear about. And finally, we'll, uh, we'll uh, talk with my uh, colleague here at Cato, Diego Zuluaga. Uh, he's a policy institute at the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And one of the reasons that I'm thrilled to be here at the Cato Institute is my opportunity to learn from Diego, uh, who um, has uh, distinguished himself, since, uh, especially since he came to the United States, as a leader on financial services and tech policy. Before that, he was at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London, where he worked on financial regulatory issues uh, and the like. He's, uh, uh, he's a frequent author, a number of columns in uh, policy papers uh, and, the, uh, and the like. So, um, so let's start off with uh, Eric. Um, you've heard from Paul now, um, and you'll be, of course, uh, representing clients uh, in, in this space and uh, thinking about uh, um, sort of how you work with this new uh, the framework. Um, and, um, and the first question I have for you is, what do you see as the practical obstacles facing the implementation uh, for these efforts to spark innovation? Uh, thanks, Todd. Uh, thank you to the Cato Institute for having me. Thank you, Todd, uh, for the invitation. And Paul, thank you for your leadership and your extremely helpful presentation on what the Bureau is up to. Um, I'll mention uh, three practical obstacles to the implementation of the policy that Paul laid out, and I hope we'll talk more about whether these are uh, insuperable or, or surmountable uh, obstacles. The first is going to be uh, consumer advocates. We've already seen it in the comments that Paul's received on uh, on each of these new innovative initiatives. Their concern is that this is a sneak attack on substantive law, that Congress thought through exactly how disclosures, for example, should be made, and that Paul and the Bureau are somehow going to unwind those carefully wrought protections. Um, uh, I, there are a lot of things that are wrong with that argument, but let me at least put it on the table to start. That problem is not going to go away. Because each time, uh, by definition, the Bureau goes forward with a no-action letter, it's going to be telling the world that no action will be taken against a particular practice, or it provides an exemption. It's going to be giving permission to a financial institution to do something that they couldn't do before. So there's going to be a drumbeat of criticism of the Bureau as it implements uh, these policies and programs. Uh, if you define enforcement as the only good way to treat financial institutions, you're not going to like what Paul and his people are doing. Uh, the second obstacle and proof that Paul got this policy about right is that industry is going to worry that the policy doesn't go far enough. Um, uh, contrary to the, the image some have of big financial institutions, they're actually quite timid 
about moving forward. And they are going to be concerned about things like their trade secrets becoming public through this process or just their proprietary plans about rolling out new products uh, becoming revealed through this process rather than through you know, an advertisement on the Academy Awards. Um, it's a highly competitive industry. They need to be worried about that. And, and finally, they'll be worried about attacks from other angles. And that brings me to the third obstacle I want to mention today. And I'm hesitant to raise it at the Cato Institute, but federalism is a problem here, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's true, because protection from federal enforcement, which Paul can grant, is not protection from everyone who might enforce the law. Even the sandboxers' promises a pretty broad exemption uh, will still leave financial institutions with concerns about what state AGs are going to do, particularly as they enforce state uh, prohibitions on unfair and deceptive practices. And while those suits may not work in the long run, they create reputational harm, cost, and uncertainty. So this terrific policy, I was going to face some bumps in the road as it goes forward. Well, you mentioned, Eric, um, you know, that maybe one of the concerns is it doesn't go far enough. Uh, what do you find particularly, um, what do they do right uh, in incentivizing financial institutions to pursue these? And where might it go further? And are there any areas where you think that the proposals could use some clarification or reduce any uncertainty that uh, might uh, um, hamper their, their use? Sure. So before I get to what Paul could do more for industry, let me just uh, describe some of the, the wonderful things that are already in the policy. And they really correct for things that were deficient about the Bureau's policies in this area uh, previously. Uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, the new policy will give you uh, protection from uh, uh, the prohibition on unfair, deceptive, and abusive practices in federal law, right? That UDAP statute has been by far the most used tool of the Bureau to bring enforcement actions. And so the idea that you would get a no-action letter that didn't touch on UDAP issues was to render the, the whole process essentially uh, meaningless. Um, and so this Bureau understands its customers better. So they understand the need for UDAP protection, the need for confidentiality, as you saw, they've thought through how this is going to fit under FOIA exemptions. They've thought through the important problem of coordination with other uh, regulators. And then one other thing that Paul just touched upon, which I think is really a, a, a brilliant addition, is that they will allow trade associations to apply for at least a provisional no-action letter so that uh, companies that are concerned about confidentiality or who want to spread the cost of seeking one of these no-action letters can work through the trade association, at least get some relief or the promise of relief once they supply their individual details. So a whole other dimension to this process that was, uh, that was missing in the Bureau's prior approach. So what could the Bureau do that was e would be even better? Well, for, uh, first, while I've got Paul as a captive here, I want to urge him to make sure that these no-action letters and Project Sandbox authorizations are explicit. That the Bureau resists the temptation to be terse and create a small target for criticism, but instead be fulsome and explain exactly why a particular authorization was granted so that others can pull themselves up that, that ladder by looking at what the Bureau has already said. Um, I, I know Paul's on this, especially given his background, but the Bureau really needs to coordinate as best it can with other authorities um, 
uh, not just with states, but internationally. And one thing I hope will happen over time is that these are not just bilateral agreements where Arizona and the Bureau talk, but that they're multilateral agreements where multiple states agree to essentially the same terms and processes so that it's easier for a financial institution to feel comfortable that they're not going to get attacked uh, from a different angle uh, from a state. Once we do that, it'll be, be not only better for applicants, but it'll encourage states to adopt their own programs and participate in this multi-state uh, effort. Um, then I think the Bureau can, um, uh, just two more. Uh, one is uh, the Bureau can use this process, uh, uh, use the, its full powers to defend this process. The Bureau, as we know from the past seven years, has enormous authority to intervene in lawsuits and when it doesn't intervene to file amicus briefs. And the Bureau, I think, is gonna be tested in the first few years of this policy. How hard is it gonna fight to protect an entity that relied upon a no action letter or a project sandbox approval. And if, if the answer should be very, very hard to set a precedent that when the Bureau says something is permissible, the Bureau means it and will use every method at its disposal to defend that determination. To not do that is to consign this, I think, to a, to a side uh, show rather than a central part of the Bureau's um, mission. And then finally, and I know this must be on Paul's mind as well, you've got to figure out how to get the first customers in the door. You know, this policy innovation is like any new product. And so the Bureau has already started making, I think, some very valuable promises about how quickly they will, uh, they will deal with the... Uh, uh, they will deal with applications. I mean, Paul's here on the hustings talking about the policy. That's a good step in the right direction. But the Bureau has to think about this as an entrepreneur. Right. How do we get this policy off the ground? And that's going to mean meeting financial institutions more than halfway because financial institutions have had access to a program like this for, for four or five years and have really haven't decided to, to, to make the purchase. So the Bureau has a sale to make now. Well, there, there you have uh, government bureaucracies being in, uh, innovation. <laughs> exactly. An office of innovation for government bureaucracies, uh, uh, a meta office. Uh, what, uh, what I think this is a, an ex a very exciting proposal, and I think the potential benefits to consumers are huge. Uh, there's research, including I would uh, point to particularly an article from last year from the Philadelphia Federal Reserve that looks at the benefits of fintech uh, in reaching consumers who've traditionally been excluded, uh, people who lack access to uh, uh, bank branches um, and otherwise have been uh, um, kept out of the competitive process. And the choice that Paul talked about, and I was thrilled to hear him uh, emphasize uh, the role of competition in protecting consumers. Nevertheless, uh, Eric, uh, some consumer activist uh, advocates have um, basically said this is a win for the Trump deregulatory agenda uh, and that consumers are being put in peril uh, or that it undermines con consumer protection. Do you think there's, uh, first, do you think there's any basis to that? Um, and second, do you think there are sufficient safeguards uh, in here to protect uh, consumers, um, and maybe just in a different way from how we've traditionally done it. Yes, absolutely. I, I think the, your comment is exactly what consumer advocates say, and what they don't realize is that innovation is not a zero-sum game. A no-action letter isn't moving uh, benefits from consumers to industry. In, in fact, it can move benefits to both industry and consumers. Um, to to, the, to the, the, the doubters, I would say uh, about four things. Uh, one is that uh, if you look, at, and Paul had it on his slide, the Dodd-Frank Act tells the Bureau to do this, right? The Dodd-Frank Act that was passed with all Democratic votes. 
and the trial disclosure policy and no action letters or initiatives begun under Director Richard Cordray. Again, no shill for industry. So there's, there, there are reasons for why everyone should be behind this policy. A second, if you, if you read the policy carefully, and, uh, and, and you can see it in, in Paul's presentations, the rule of decision for the policy and whether or not you're going to get this kind of regulatory relief is whether there are potential benefits to the consumer and whether any consumer risks, um, if any, are identified and controlled for. Those are two of the three criteria that are going to make it possible to get this kind of relief. So no one's going to slide one by uh, the Bureau and end up with a reform uh, or a, no, a new product or service or disclosure that isn't net beneficial uh, to consumers. Uh, the third thing I'd, I'd just mention uh, is that the current disclosure regime is working for no one, right? <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I refer you to this terrific book uh, called More Than You Wanted to Know, The Future of Mandated Disclosure, uh, which makes the, the, the obvious point that the proliferation of disclosures is self-defeating. That, over, that consumers who are inundated with information skip directly to the signature line. All of us have done it. The biggest transaction in your life, your mortgage, right, comes with a stack of paperwork that you promptly ignore, right? And uh, since that is a, almost a universal consumer experience, the idea that we should experiment with disclosure is one that has real power to deliver benefits uh, for consumers. And then just fourth, the, the, the last point I'd make is that most of your disclosures nowadays come on your iPhone or your iPad or maybe your home computer. But the idea that you're going to get a stack of paper and review it is very uh, 1900s, right? And, uh, and so the, a rethinking is required. It's not optional. We can't, we can't pretend that we live in this world when, in fact, we live in this world. And that's why the Bureau has to keep innovating or it's going to leave consumers uh, behind. Uh, so for all those reasons, I think... The Bureau has an excellent case to make for this policy, and, and consumer advocates, if they are concerned about consumer welfare, should be participating in rather than fighting this tooth and nail. I'm reminded of a survey I saw of consumers by a government agency that asked, how many people think you get the right amount of information when you open a bank account? And only 50% of people said they got the right amount. Of the other 50%, half said they got too little and half said they got too much. <laughs> so yeah. uh, to, to, to your sure. point. Um, thank you for those remarks, Eric. I think that's uh, very helpful in um, uh, sort of framing this. And I'm, I'd like to turn to you now, Conan, for sort of you've looked at this from an international perspective in many different ways. Um, and, um, you know, as we talked about, in many ways, the U.S. is playing catch-up on this, um, and there's lessons I think we can learn from abroad. What has been the experience of sandboxes around the world, and if they generally succeeded in their aspirations, and if, if so, why, and if not, why not? Well, I think that they've been a really important and essential regulatory and supervisory signal over the past few years, ever since Project Catalyst got things moving out of CFPB uh, and the FCA in, in the U.K., uh, adopted and launched their sandbox in, in 2014, 2015. You saw dozens moving out. You now have the global uh, sandbox proposal that was mentioned before. So I think it's been seized upon as a really important response um, to try and drive some of these efficiencies and effective uh, deployments of technology, new business models. So I think that's been uh, essential. But just as we see sort of a reboot here in the U.S. of one of the original uh, originators of, of the idea revisiting it and saying, okay, what have we learned in attempts over the past couple of years? I think that's a consistent global 
process. You know, the UK has found that I think it's about 80% of the participants in their sandboxes haven't actually needed um, the legal uh, relief uh, that was offered in the sandbox that they were fully compliant anyway. Um, so they were joining for other reasons. And I think that's been one thing that's consistent. So a mechanism that was originally thought of primarily as a competitiveness uh, uh, you know, a, a way to drive competition and help new challengers enter the market. I think now that uh, industry and the public sector are starting to realize these new technologies like AI, uh, blockchain, um, new data applications are making for the possibility of a much more efficient and effective future, I think that that's an important new element that you see coming in um, globally. And I think that's certainly something that we've recommended that this uh, GFIN, the global proposal, um, look at is uh, some of the things other folks have talked about, consistency of standards. You know, we at the IF with members across 76 countries and working with a lot of different regulators um, see that as, as an issue, whether you're looking at um, data protection of policies or treatment of data across jurisdictions. Um, these new platforms and many of these new technologies are inherently sort of global. They go where connectivity and mm -hmm. the internet goes. And so finding the right frameworks uh, for the public sector and industry to work together and move to some of these new platforms, um, while also opening up the opportunity for innovation, uh, is a great development. But I think some of the things that have been identified is making sure that you're not just temporarily waiving uh, legal requirements for certain categories of entrants is kind of important. You know, fintechs and, and banks have become great partners and, and accelerants for each other's work. Uh, and so, you know, this uh, new proposal recognizes the role of third parties and partnerships, and I think that's another important principle. So I think the global trend has been, you know, really seizing on, it's important to send the signals, important to open the doors and be interested and open for innovation, um, but we're now revisiting what have been some of the shortcomings in the initial attempts at the model and how do we uh, fine-tune this process and how do we make it a little more consistent, not just across states and regulators within the U.S. You know, the EU has the same problem um, that they're sorting through. ESMA came out with some guidance uh, for digital and crypto um, assets uh, that recognize that the regulatory map doesn't necessarily hold uh, with some of these new technologies. So I think that's kind of the, the trend that we see is creating and establishing a platform for the public sector, uh, regulator supervisors, and industry to drive for a more efficient, effective, inclusive uh, sector. You, you mentioned that um, maybe 80% of firms that um, have entered the sandbox maybe didn't need to. Uh, more generally, what sort of firms have tended to um, access the sandboxes in, in other countries, and what firm, what types of firms have benefited uh, if if a lot didn't really need it? Where kind of has the benefit come to for, to, the, to the other firms? Yeah, well, I, I think it's really depended by uh, where the sandbox is and who's convening the sandbox. So they've been created with different objectives. So the FCA in UK has. Uh, certainly had a competitiveness mandate, and so they've really been trying to speed the entrant of, of new, uh, new providers. Um, if you look at some of the securities agency sandboxes, whether it's in Abu Dhabi or um, Australia uh, or Singapore, um, that's been sort of a different focus where you may have more legacy uh, institutions and their third-party service providers um, trying to, to bring in new models. Um, 
As you, as you mentioned, this is a reboot for, uh, for, the, for the CFPB um, and that other countries have advanced this uh, very quickly. What, one of that opportunities that gives Paul is the opportunity to learn from the experiences abroad, um, from their trial runs, from their experiments. Are there any particular things that you would suggest that the CFPB keep in mind based on the experiences of other countries of particular elements of um, the regulatory sandboxes that turned out to be particularly effective, maybe more important and effective than expected, and elements that maybe didn't work as well as expected or ever turned out to be ineffective or, uh, or, or counterproductive. What can we learn uh, tangibly from those experiences? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is um, the U.S. certainly has a, a view that we need to try and catch up here. And I think you know, our uh, framework for innovation, because we have so many regulators and because the states, you know, there's a federal level, a state level, I think that there's a perception that we have a competitive uh, disadvantage, uh, sort of this, this concept of catching up. I actually think we benefit from a really advanced ecosystem here. And that's one of the things that you might not see in every other market. You know, China is a very different in individual market. I think they have had, they ran, you know, unofficially and maybe inadvertently through their laissez-faire policy 2007 to 2014-15, uh, one of the biggest sandbox experiments, and now they've been working mightily to rein things in and, and reorganize the sector. Uh, so I think one of the things that you might take away from, for instance, that experiment is, um, been reflected in this in this reboot, which is have an open mind to who you're you're targeting. Don't presume that ah, uh, it's you know just this category of, of firms or this segment of the market, and really being open to an equal opportunity to innovate because you're not exactly sure where it's going to come from. Uh, some of the other things that actually have already been addressed are, um, or, or maybe should be increased, are thinking about the new technologies. So. Competitiveness and consumer choice is an important objective, but I think that uh, data, cloud, AI, um, machine learning applications are transforming so many different parts of the economy. And in financial services, if regulators and the industry don't find a way to work together to advance the use of these new technologies, um, I think we'll have some, some serious problems. And this is you know, one example of a mechanism that could help advance that. And so some of these uh, principles of, again, third parties um, being included in the sandbox, I think, are really important. Well, thanks. Um, picking up on that point, Diego, you were in London at the IEA uh, sort of uh, during the um, sort of boot up of the FCA and that uh, project, which is, I think, um, many people look to as a model in, in many ways. But both Conrad and Paul have raised the issue of the FCA kind of has this unique ability. There's a more centralized bureaucratic regulatory <laughs> process in, um, uh, in England that allows them a broader sweep to provide uh, protection, exemptions, and the like. Here we do have this regulatory uh, uh, fragmentation um, and, and the like. The proposal, as Paul laid it out, um, contemplates mechanisms for greater um, cooperation um, and, and, and that sort of thing. Do you have any reflections on that, sort of the uh, interagency, federal state um, cooperation uh, um, and what, how that might work? 
Absolutely. I think also one of the key differences between the Bureau and the FCA in, in the UK is that the FCA is a licensing authority primarily, uh, whereas the Bureau is about rulemaking and, and enforcement. And I think in terms of how you set up a sandbox, that presents some uh, challenges and differences as to how you go about implementing it, because the level of assurance that you can provide, particularly in a fragmented system, uh, is not the same. Um, I wouldn't necessarily entirely agree with Eric that federalism is a problem. I think federalism is a challenge uh, in this case because you want but to he have, said. You want to have, you want to have um, regulatory fragmentation to the extent that that breeds competition and you know, creates different environments for different types of firms and de depending on what level of protection consumers want in every jurisdiction and so on. At the same time, you don't want to massively increase the cost of coordination between uh, agencies. And that, that's where I think the Bureau can play uh, a positive role in terms of providing some sort of imprint of um, guarantee that there will be no prosecution at the federal level of practices that are happening at the state level. So if a state wants to encourage innovation in some sort of way, it can rely on that level of assurance. Uh, another way in which I think both the no action letter policy um, and the sandbox can be beneficial is in coordinating efforts to try and, for example, make data compatibility, interoperability between uh, applications. You know, we all hear about fintech apps and people are using to manage their personal finances, to apply for loans and so on, a lot of different mobile devices and, and applications. And the challenge in the US is that data protection differs across states, there isn't an established regime, and we're not clear that we want the federal government necessarily imposing a data protection regime because we might end up with a nightmare that is GDPR in the European Union. So you want to make sure that you still have some market feedback in terms of what's going on. And my impression from the language in the no action letter and sandbox uh, comment piece in the Federal Register is that it would lend itself by virtue of gathering the feedback from firms as to what sort of exemptions they're looking for and what sort of protections they want, you could get an idea as to where the challenges are and where the compliance costs might be in terms of data use. And uh, the Bureau could help in talks with other federal regulators uh, address some of that as data protection issues arise. So you have some sort of interaction there uh, between market institutions and, and government institutions. So I think that's um, a positive. Um, a, a third aspect which uh, I think is promising in this sense is that the Bureau over the last year and a half or so not only has um, had a, an Office of Innovation uh, incorporated, but also an Office of Cost-Benefit Analysis. And to me, both these policies, no action letters and sandboxes, are a way to find out where the costliest and the least uh, worthwhile elements of current rulemaking and enforcement are, and how you might review those to facilitate entry. Uh, so that you can somehow, you know, to, to, to the extent that you have applications from uh, individual firms about individual parts of Bureau Enforcement Authority, you might want to interact with the Office of Cost-Benefit Analysis to see what should change, what is simply not working effectively. And I think that's a useful uh, data-gathering exercise that will be more objective than if you ask the participants directly, because if you ask them directly, they might be afraid that you're going to go <laughs> after them even more. Um, so I think that's one promise. And then the last... Uh, uh, the last piece that I wanted to mention is that data sharing does present the issue of how public is it, how aggregated is it, and how can it be used, say, if you get an exemption to one part of your activity or on one part of your uh, compliance burden, to what extent could that data be used for enforcement purposes elsewhere within bureau jurisdiction? And 
although I'm very happy that, that Paul is at the Office of Innovation uh, and, of course, welcome very much uh, his approach to this, I do think that the true test of this will be when people who are normally skeptical of innovation and more concerned about traditional consumer protection, uh, whether the sandbox will continue to work effectively. And, uh, and, and I would suggest that we need to find out more, perhaps, as to what the data collection efforts will be and how that data will be used and what the access by different, count, by different parties will be. And I think that's one of the exciting parts of this is the, the, the data collection. And, and one of the things I think is underappreciated about the proposal in terms of protecting consumers is these guys kind of have to open the kimono, as the old saying goes, right? Which is you're basically saying, here's what we're doing. We're reporting in real time to the Bureau. So in terms of sort of an enforcement model, right, they basically are turning over their, their data uh, to the agency, which I think is an underappreciated aspect of uh, uh, building consumer protection uh, 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 into this. Um, and you mentioned the data a, a few times, Diego. Do you have any other thoughts about how, they, how the Bureau could use the data uh, that's collected here? Um, any other pitfalls that you can think of uh, with respect to um, how all this data will be used and um, amassed? I think there are three different uh, elements of, of data collection and data use that are important. The first one is, in terms of aggregate data, I'm all in favor of collecting uh, what sort of exemptions people are seeking, what sort of businesses they want to be involved in, are they payments firms, are they fintechs, is it about disclosures, and so on and so forth. I think that's great. At the proprietary level, I'm concerned about making a lot of these data public because a lot of these firms might have state-level uh, enforcement issues, they might have lawsuits going on, or they might simply be concerned that because they're very innovative, there simply isn't a case law that can easily be applied. You know, we're seeing this in cryptocurrencies, that famous Howey test. We don't know whether it applies to most cryptos or not. I'm thinking about those kinds of issues. And if you reveal that proprietary data, and under the previous leadership, the Bureau was very keen on that sort of stuff, um, I think you can chill innovation very significantly. If I had, you know, one wish list for Paul, uh, since you're here, I have to say it. Um, <laughs> I would actually be as public as possible about how data will be analyzed. We had a case with auto lending way back in, I think, 2014, 2015, uh, when a lot of the regressions that were practiced to try and prove that auto lenders were discriminatory um, were, wouldn't have passed master in one of my introductory econometrics classes in college. And yet they were used for enforcement purposes by the Bureau. And so um, I would publicize what sort of treatment will be given to this so that firms know what, what standard they will be held up to. I think that would be very beneficial. I, and let me just say amen to that as a, as a researcher. Um, I was very frustrated trying to get data about the arbitration study that they did. Um, the way they've used data with respect to payday loans, uh, I think has been frustrating. And so um, I hope uh, I'll second uh, Diego's request, Paul, from the, uh, the research uh, arm of the uh, panel, uh, if, uh, if it's possible to make these data um, public in some fashion in, in the future to kind of analyze the impact of this. Um, uh, Diego, one last question for you, which is uh, what do you think about the sandbox and how it might benefit the bureau and state level uh, states in terms of rulemaking uh, consumer finance more generally? 
I think the key is finding out to what extent competition drives consumer protection or can drive consumer protection in the future versus to what extent we should still rely on statutory regulation. And I don't think the mix of those is necessarily invariant over time. And it seems to me that as you have more easy access to competitors, as you can browse for options on your phone, for example, and you don't have the mobility issues and the issues of having a bank branch nearby, for example, or a, or a payments provider nearby, as you go about finding different providers, that competition perhaps is, is a better, is a better uh, provider of consumer protection, a lower cost and more uh, dynamic provider than, than regulation. So to me, the, particularly the information from applications as to what firms are actually looking to be exempt from because they might have a different way of going about providing what the statute is seeking to provide. That information will be important in terms of finding out where the burdens are. If you look at burdens on financial institutions right now, it's astonishing how much of it comes from anti-money laundering and know your customer rules. Most people think that when we talk about regulatory burdens on banks, we're talking about prudential stuff, capital requirements, <laughs> or, uh, you know, I mean, I think those can be burdensome too, of course. I'm not excusing those. But if you ask banks, a lot of it comes from the Bank Secrecy Act-related stuff. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we can find out to what extent we're right about where the compliance burden lies as a result of these applications, I think that can be beneficial. And that will hopefully inform uh, state-level policymaking because, after all, uh, the states rely on uh, licensing revenue for uh, a lot of this stuff. So I think, I think that's a good monetary incentive to act rightly. Well, well, thanks. Well, Paul, as you can tell, there's a lot of enthusiasm here for what you are doing and a lot of feedback and a lot of uh, begging uh, from some of us uh, as well. Uh, before we turn to the audience for comments or questions, do you have any thoughts uh, you want to uh, add or uh, anything anybody said? Well, I, I just appreciate you including me in this discussion. I'll just at a, a note of personal appeal, I, as, as uh, the professor mentioned, my prior job was consumer enforcement in the attorney general's office. And anyone who's in that position is fully aware of the limits of their ability. And if you care about protecting the consumer, particularly going forward, you're looking for, another, for other avenues. There are segments of the consumer finance economy where, in my view, people are not being treated well, where people are using products that are probably not a great fit. Uh, and so the potential for technology to price risk more effectively, to change this cost structure so that the services that higher income folks have available are made available to lower income, that is extremely exciting. Uh, that is very w well worth pursuing. Uh, and so I hope that these proposals in fulfilling our statutory mandate to facilitate innovation will have that effect. Well said. Um, we've got time now for uh, plenty of time for some questions from the audience. Uh, we'll go with Brian and then in front, um, and then we'll go here. Uh, Brian Knight, Mercatus Center. Uh, first off, thank you for having this event. It's been great. And uh, while I, I certainly am excited about the, the concept of a, of a regulatory sandbox, uh, I just wanted to ask, it seems like there is something of a paradox, though, because to, to get firms to use a sandbox, it has to be useful. But if it's too useful, it's an undue regulatory advantage over the competitors who weren't able to get into the sandbox. And in a world of resource limitations, someone's not going to get in. So I was just curious what your thinking is around how you mitigate that risk so that entrance into the sandbox doesn't become the golden ticket. 
Thank you for that question. And I guess that, that problem would indicate that what we have done has been successful. A, a common <laughs> question I've, I've, I get is, well, are, do you think anyone's actually going to apply because they're, they're so afraid of approaching the Bureau? So you're, you're raising the opposite problem. What if, what if everybody wants to apply and we're having to pick uh, winners, winners and losers and, and having to figure out how to scale what we've learned? Now, I think there are methods for for scaling best practices that we've discerned through the sandbox. One of them is through publicizing the terms of the letter. Another is through third-party applications. We've noted in the policy that if we've granted a similar approval, that that should be referenced by applicants, and that in some cases may accelerate approval. Now, the Bureau, I think, is very data-driven, so if we're seeing results that are very positive, I think that would probably affect the uh, r routine regulatory review that we do. Uh, and so a successful program, I think, could translate more broadly into changing rules in a way that promotes innovation and, and limits any, uh, any downside risk. If I, if I could add, uh, it, it may be comforting to think of this as just analogous to a first mover advantage for any new product or service, really. Uh, anyone who comes up with a slightly better financial product is going to have a temporary advantage in the marketplace until competitors catch up. And because the Bureau is going to be publicizing the approvals it gives, the exemptions it gives, and the no-action letters it uh, promulgates, others will be able to catch up in the same way they can when a product breaks through uh, uh, you know, a technological milestone and others follow, I think you'll see a piling on effect, uh, which, which will be terrific, which will mean that the, that the first customers are hardest to get and then there'll be a stampede for no action letters just like the one that the that Bank A got and the Bureau will be able to process those quickly because they'll be quite similar in, in their terms. But that issue of equal opportunity of access, I think is a really important piece to, to make sure that it gets right. Mm -hmm. Well, a question for, for any of you guys is, it's often said, and I don't know the, the validity of this, that the, sort of the op opposite problem, uh, which is graduating out of the sandbox um, and based on experiences abroad or based on your experience in Arizona, Paul, um, to, to what extent is that, uh, how many firms go into the sandbox and then kind of grow up and move out of the basement uh, and, uh, you know, get their own place uh, and grow, grow, be grown-ups? So the best data point, I think, is from the FCA. I was, uh, I was hired away from Arizona after, shortly after the statute went into effect, so I know they have firms in the, statu in the, in the sandbox, but I'm uh, not in a position to comment on, on what's going to happen to those firms afterward. Afterwards, uh, and you, you know, I used to I used to have these statistics down when I was uh, promoting the Arizona sandbox. I think it's something like eighty percent of the firms in the FCA uh, sandbox went on to launch their firms more broadly. Diego can probably correct me if I'm if I'm getting that wrong. So I do think that that this is a helpful me mechanism for bringing uh, new products to light in conjunction with other, with other policies, right? That's why we have no action letter. That's why we have informal external engagement. The sandbox is not the best vehicle for, for everything. But in some cases, when you're talking about a product that is, that is really something new where the consequences and the results are not known, 
um, I think this uh, structure makes a lot of sense. And we'd observe that as a best practice as well. If you're simply temporarily waiving you know, regulatory requirements that you fully intend to have take effect uh, you know, when they exit the sandbox, you might not be doing anyone a favor. You're sort of creating a hothouse flower that might not survive that transition. Uh, and maybe you're not addressing the overarching problem, which is maybe the regulations and the framework need to be adjusted in light of new technologies and the business model that can come in. So we think that's an essential piece and one that we certainly advocate uh, globally that is a best practice is that this is a two-way experiment and that the entire public sector is connected up, sharing information and revisiting, you know, what do we need to rethink here? How can we take the regulatory principles that are in place for very good reasons, you know, consumer protection being the very top of the list, representing an industry that spends an extraordinary amount of time and is very focused on that issue. That's clearly something that we think these rules have been developed for a good reason and they and those principles need to carry forward. Uh, so the prin principle, of course, of you know, same risk, same activity, same regulation is an example of, of a good one. Uh, and the sandbox really should be an opportunity for regulators, supervisors, and industry to say, ah, you know, we had this objective. The code was developed in 1969 after a decade of gestation. Uh, how should we revisit this? And I think you see that one of the silver linings of the ICO boom in the crypto industry is people revisiting securities regulation. And what is a security? What is an asset? What's the map look like? We've got this new technology that brings in new capabilities, some of which might be good and, and bad. Um, and how do we update the framework uh, in light of these new technology developments? And Great point. Diego. The, if I remember correctly, the admission rate into the FCA sandbox was only about 30 40% for, for the, the applicants that they got. But I think that's where the nature of the FCA versus that of the Bureau comes into play. Because when I spoke to sandbox people at the FCA, they would always say that, well, you know, we have to... Uh, reject a lot of applicants because it would simply be too much effort to see if we can license these people uh, after supervising them for two years when they don't have what seems like a viable business model. Huh. And I didn't like that answer because of the viable business model bit because it's not the job of the regulator to uh, ascertain they cannot really whether something is viable or not. In their case, they had to because they had limited resources and they were, they were licensing these people. I think in the case of the Bureau, the, um, they can be more open and open-minded about genuinely radical ideas coming and asking for no action letters and exemptions because there isn't this imprint. There will, for better or worse, always be another agency or almost always be another agency that provides the charter or the license or whatever it is. So I think it's an opportunity to be more liberal in the classical sense uh, than, uh, than, than some of the international counterparts. Good, good point. Question down in front here. And we'll go here and then up to John. Thank you. Um, Una MacDonald. One of the questions I wanted to ask is a little further on from what has been presented. I have I'm very impressed with the presentation and with the procedure to uh, bring sandboxes into the US using UK as one of the models. Uh, my question is, you're very concerned to increase financial inclusion. But let us take just one or two issues. When you're looking at really new fintech proposals, when you're looking at, for example, the use of robo-advisors to replace human advisors, will this really help those who are on the very lowest incomes 
to move forward microfinance, which no doubt you have looked at and you know the concerns there, Eric, isn't it? Um, will it really help, bearing in mind that such people have very little real disposable income, how that is used is extremely important, and the human element in enabling them to make the best possible use of what limited resources they have is a very important part of financial inclusion. What will the criteria be for judging the success of a firm that has entered into the sandbox and to emerge from it? Will its effectiveness in increasing financial inclusion, for example, be one element? I, I would have a lot of other questions about that, uh, ranging around that topic, but I don't want to take up too much time. Dora, great question. I'd say um, that's, that's one of the great possibilities of all of these new technologies moving in is, again, that we could bring uh, 2 billion uh, citizens on the earth who don't have great options today into the same mainstream, regulated, providently managed system. The problem is, you know, somebody mentioned AML and KYC requirements. And, you know, today we're spending trillions of dollars. Uh, we're catching about 1% of the financial crime. Uh, this is not a, a system or an output or a result that anybody's happy with. And it's creating a cost of account that's really pretty significant. And so, unfortunately, some are then uh, seduced by the idea, well, maybe, maybe all of these, you know, Anglo rules just shouldn't apply and we'll waive it. Uh, so we'll allow some... You know, 10 years ago, it was mobile network operators. Now it's digital platform companies to come in and offer an alternative system at a lower dollar value, lower volume, and really just waive the requirements to create a two-speed regulatory system. And we hope instead that these sandboxes, for instance, tackle these problems of AML. What can you do with new machine learning and AI uh, data modeling with the new data systems? And how can things like KYC utilities, which they've run into to some prick walls, so maybe it's instead making individuals more uh, sovereign and control over their um, digital identity and maybe uh, flip the switch. And there's some exciting experiments by some of our, our large uh, global banking members that are trying to work with tech firms to say, okay, you know, if we can't solve it from the utility model, let's solve it from the consumer model. And if that reduces, say, the cost of accounts by 50%, 70%, that can start to have the knock-on effect where you may not be able to reach people at the very, very you know, base immediately, um, but if you start to bring in some of those SMEs into the formal financial sector and some of the um, mezzanine segments, then you're starting to make progress that has a knock-on effect. You create uh, a critical mass and the more efficient and effective technology platforms in the industry could really uh, solve that problem. So. We hope and think that the sandbox is not necessarily this one particularly, but uh, things like the GFIN, one of the things that they could really address is this problem of KYC and AML um, becoming a de-risking and uh, barrier to inclusion problem globally. So we're excited, uh, but, but think that there needs to be a recognition of the power of new technologies. So one example in, in most AML, legal regimes today, a person non-present transaction is deemed inherently risky. Um, so somebody showing up with a slip of paper that they've just filled in with an account number is safe. Um, but somebody on a mobile device that has a secure element and can provide some biometric security is inherently risky. 
probably a framework that needs to be revisited, and hopefully global standard setters like FATF and the Financial Stability Board are doing that, uh, and you know, will we'll again create um, new solutions. So that's why I say sandboxes and no action letters are an important piece of an overall puzzle of how do uh, the public sector and industry keep pace with these new technologies that are rapidly transforming the rest of the economy. Uh, we have a question here, and then John Burlow, um, and then we'll see who. Oh, sorry, we'll go to you next. Thank you, Dave Rubinowitz. Uh, one of the early slides you showed about consumer protection had the word education in it, but you didn't talk about that. And I'm wondering about that. Today's Express has an article that says 74% of Facebook users don't realize the site keeps a list of their interests and shares it with advertisers. <laughs> in spite of lots of uh, publicity and uh, disclosure. And my guess is that a lot of the unbanked people are unbanked because they don't realize that they get any benefit from actually using banks. I'm wondering, is anybody working on developing classroom materials, other educational materials for elementary, high school level, and perhaps putting together speakers who could go on Ellen or GMA or something and actually educate the public? So You've, you've touched on something that I think is an important component of consumer protection. I didn't. Uh, I skipped through some of the uh, some of the presentation. I, it could obviously be a much a much longer presentation, but I think enforcement, innovation, and education are are three very important components of of consumer protection, and something that the bureau puts a lot of time and resources into doing. While I actually think there's maybe a little bit of a connection between the prior question and yours in that I think there is the potential for, for machine learning to analyze consumer data and say, well, based on what you're doing, here's what you need to pay attention to. We know that this is the time of month when you're most at risk for an overdraft. And we think that this type of uh, credit card based on your spending is going to provide the most value to you. For folks who want that sort of information, I think that may be a path forward in providing sort of actionable education information. And that's one of the important things I've seen in financial education is people need the, 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 they need the information when they need the information, right? It's like the big stack of paper you know, we talked about at the bank account doesn't really tell you if you're going to overdraft nine months later, right, or a year and a half later, right? Uh, and I think that's one of the things I think is exciting about sort of thinking that you're doing here in terms of thinking about disclosures and everybody I think is in agreement that that's one of the exciting things here is and what I think is an exciting possibility is disclosures at the time people actually need the information when they're making a decision or you're taking it the next step which I think is you know basically giving people information based on things they may not even realize right in sort of um, you know, uh, in, informing them, I wouldn't necessarily call it our traditional financial education, which everybody knows doesn't work, right? There's no evidence that the way we teach financial literacy works, uh, right? But actually improving consumer decision-making at the time they're making decisions, I think you've kind of unlocked something here that I think could be very exciting about improving the quality of information and the relevance of information that people get. 
I think the point about relevance is, is very important because on the, on the Facebook point, people often raise this, uh, this use of information to present people with different kinds of things, depending on what their preferences are, as if it were a bad thing. Right. I mean, you would have thought that you want to see ads that you're more likely to click on rather than have things that are of, are of complete irrelevance to you, unless you think that somehow these people have so much more information on you that they can manipulate you. But that's a very extreme view uh, from, from, from my perspective. So you'd rather approach information that potentially might be of interest sooner rather than later. And these algorithms hopefully will help in that. I'd add one other thing, which is uh, the disclosures need to be right-sized. So there's been a steady accumulation of detail. Every time a bank gets sued, they add another line to their, their disclosure, right? And every time a regulator has a bright idea, they add a line to the disclosure. And so if you're talking, not, in addition to just-in-time disclosure, which I agree with, it's got to be right-sized uh, so people actually read it. And this is a generation that's used to getting their news, you know, one tweet at a time. And so the idea that you give them four pages to read before they can sign up for their uh, new uh, online account is to give up, really, on, on conveying any information to them. 140-character disclosure. That, that, <laughs> heard it here. Um, we'll go to John, but then this fellow here is uh, next, two, two rows behind. That guy just asked the question. John Burlau, and then we'll have one more question down here, I think. Yes, John Burlau, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thank you all. A comment and a question, which you can respond to either or, or both. The comment is, I'm all for sandboxes. I think it's been shown that if you create an island of freedom, provided it doesn't act as a monopoly or duopoly, not only do you have people clamoring to go to that island, you also have a clamoring for freedom on the mainland, and it can create an impetus to change laws <laughs> or change rules. And, and you have the data to show how that freedom worked and benefited uh, consumers. An example from another industry is when Herb Kelleher, who just passed, founded Southwest Airlines, he only flew in Texas because that's where the airline price controls didn't apply. There was an exemption for interstate flights, and people looked at that and said, you know, well, why is it so much cheaper to fly from Dallas to Houston than it is from D.C. to New York or uh, Boston, which was about the same distance, and that created the impetus for the bipartisan airline deregulation uh, sponsored by Ted Kennedy in 1978. You're welcome. We talked about federalism and state AGs. We know they, they, they can enforce state law, of course, but I believe the Dodd-Frank also gives them some power to uh, enforce on behalf of the CFPB or enforce some consumer laws. So how would the no-action letters apply to them? Could they, could they ignore those? Or uh, I may not uh, know all the, all, the, all the parts here, but just if, if anyone has... Uh, uh, any thoughts on on that? So, so, also so my, explain the point, the uh, provision he's referencing briefly. Right. First. Well, uh, sure. Uh, so under uh, Dodd Frank's uh, in Title Ten of Dodd Frank, there's a, a UDOT provision, a federal UDOT provision that can be enforced by the bureau. It can be enforced by state AGs. It's my understanding that if a provision is waived, if a safe harbor is created, then um, uh, then that provision cannot be relied on by as the basis for a lawsuit. Uh, now, in practical effect, there are state UDAPs all over the country. So mm -hmm. I think it would be pretty rare that there's something that could not be brought under a state UDAP, but it could be brought 
under the Dodd-Frank Act. Maybe others on the panel are familiar with examples of what that category might be. Follow-up, I think, related to John's question is, um, you said the no-action letter is essentially a statement of enforcement policy, not a formal exemption. Uh, Do we know how that a no-action letter with respect to the CFPB's enforcement of UDAP would be interpreted would that be binding on a state that, um, does, do you follow the, the question? Right, so yeah, so I think that would be a great opportunity for someone to research and file a comment on. <laughs> I, I, can, I, can John, add a, homework. <laughs> I can add a little perspective, Todd. So the state AGs need to notify under Dodd-Frank Act if they're bringing an action under the federal UDAP statute. And so the Bureau will have an opportunity, particularly one they should exercise when they've issued a no-action letter, to intervene in that suit. And to, and to steer it away from violating the promises that are made explicitly and implicitly when they file a no-action letter. It's another reason, though, because there are state UDAP statutes, for the no-action letter to be persuasive, for the Bureau to treat it as not a two-line, we give you permission uh, to do X, but an explanation for why permitting the company to do X is in the consumer's interest and not, at issue, not, at, uh, not in conflict with the goals of the Bureau uh, and the goals of state AGs. So um, there will be, I, I predict, you know, there'll be some state AG who has a bright idea that the word abusive in the federal UDAP statute means something that the Bureau doesn't, the current Bureau doesn't agree with. And there, it may be that the Bureau needs to actually jump into the lawsuit with both uh, feet and say to, to the court, as it has in many other circumstances, that the Bureau has the final word on what this statute means because it was entrusted to us by Congress. Hi there, Jay Jang with the American Bankers Association. Uh, thank you for uh, so much for being here for the event. So two questions. Uh, first, on <coughs> the data sharing piece of it. So I know a lot of the uh, fair lending concerns that have been raised, particularly about online lenders, marketplace lenders, have been that it in some way uh, could exacerbate you know discriminatory lending, uh, you know credit discrimination of that type. So under a data sharing provision through the sandbox. Could we expect some sort of, uh, you know, approach from the Bureau to try to get verifiability, auditability is a word that comes up a lot, especially when it comes around sort of the algorithmic underwriting of what they call black boxes um, when it comes to lending decisions. So uh, that for one. And the second, just, you know, on a broader brushstrokes, if I heard correctly, someone mentioned that uh, trade associations can be a part of the no action letter process. If you could just add some color to that, you know, what trades might be able to expect, so on. Thank you. Great. Well, I, I can start with the with the last component and the structure broadly is that third parties like a trade association can provide apply for a provisional no action letter and uh, provide all the information that they can at the time, which hopefully will be just about everything we need except for the name of the entity, maybe some entity specific details. And then later on, specific entities could notify us, and they would still have to notify us uh, to receive the no-action letter and, and say, uh, we, we would like to receive a no-action letter under these terms. Uh, here's our name. Here's the additional information that, that you need. Uh, and then, I apologize. I, uh, oh, it was on uh, the, the data sharing that we'll gather in the sandbox with respect to fair lending and explainability of AI. So the, the no action letter that was issued by the Bureau to Upstore related to educational data and um, 
So this is already a focus of the Bureau, understanding the, the, uh, the impact and the ramifications of using different types of data. And I think the sandbox is probably particularly well suited to the extent that machine learning really is unexplainable. I mean, I mean there are some people who say, well, we've got this product and it spits out an outcome and we really have no idea how they got there, but we put a lot of money behind it. <laughs> Maybe that's an accurate representation of where they are, but there are other people who come in the door and say, okay, we've got sort of this unstructured result and then we put, we layered on top our business rationale and some regulatory requirements and that, uh, that removed some elements that were, were problematic and so we can actually explain to you generally uh, how this outcome occurred and I think the sandbox environment is probably a good environment for testing those requirements and saying, well, is this actually performing the way, the way you were anticipating or are you seeing something different? On the trade association point, it's, it, the Bureau was smart, I think, to carve out a role for trade associations because trades are used to uh, sort of deflecting uh, regulatory ire or, 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 uh, or public concerns uh, for their members. So, for example, comments are routinely filed, filed not by a particular bank, but by a banking trade association. So no particular bank gets blamed for whatever criticism is in that commentary. In this context, it'll be enormously helpful, I think, for trade to be able to file, get 90% of the way there on a no-action letter, get a provisional no-action letter, and then let its members decide if they want to take that last step, provide their names, their data, uh, uh, the information about exactly how they're going to follow through on the no-action letter uh, to the Bureau. It also will address the, the problem raised earlier, which is it will eliminate this first-mover problem or scarcity of regulatory resources because when a large trade association applies for a no-action letter, all of its members can take advantage of the provisional no-action letter if granted so that there, is a, uh, there could be a stampede to a new innovation rather than, uh, rather than a lonely trek by one financial institution. And I think your point about uh, new data and new data tools and credit and risk models is a very good one. Um, explainability has been sort of the, the, I think, quick answer that people would throw out over the past uh, year when faced with <laughs> something new is to say, well, it has to be explainable. Uh, interestingly, Randy Quarles, you know, the Fed vice chair for supervision at the Atlanta Fed conference in the spring said, you know, let's stop and think about this for a minute. You know, we allow a lot of uh, advanced humans in the financial services industry to make decisions uh, and uh, create products that they are much better at doing than they are explaining. <laughs> and maybe, but, but we allow them to do it because it's been borne out over time and we know how to respond to them when there's a bad actor and, and what the regulatory response should be. And we understand, you know, the sticks and carrots that humans react to. Um, so maybe we need to rethink this uh, moving forward. And I think um, some level of uh, transparency or just making sure that you haven't created a proxy for a prohibited lending practice like redlining or something else, I mean, that's a, a very clear, I think, level. But it is a very good example of why uh, industry and the public sector need new environments to try and, and work on these models because you don't want to just say, oh, it has to be Perfectly explainable. You know, we can, we can't explain why that lending officer made the decision, but you know, we'll have to extend that to the to the uh, algorithm. Um, so, very good issues that everyone should be digging into. 
It's one of the reasons why I'm so keen on, on the data analysis that will actually happen at the Bureau with this stuff is because statistical significance techniques are not perfect. The reason you have a 5% threshold is that you want to be reasonably sure that it isn't happening by chance, but 5% of the time it will happen by chance, that something is found to be, say, discriminatory when in fact it isn't. And I think if we're trying to make a ruling as to whether something's legal or illegal, if you're using a statistical judgment, unless you have overwhelming evidence, it seems to me, particularly in highly innovative areas, that you would want to err on the side of caution because you can always have new competitors come in that will address whatever weaknesses the old system have. You know, this is the old Easterbrook type one versus type two uh, errors uh, discussion. And, and I think that will be important as far as making sure that judgments on the test population in the sandbox are not necessarily exported to the population as a whole uh, when you're analyzing whether the, whether the exemption was useful or not. Um, I... Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I cannot elaborate it more than just, you know, repeat my appeal from earlier. You know, tell us what you're going to do with it so that we know. <laughs> um, we're just about out of time. Paul, I'll give, give you the last word. You said the comment period is closed now on the disclosure portion of it. Uh, John Burlow now has his homework assignment for his <laughs> comment. I'm just kidding, John. Uh, but what is the timing now between now and when this becomes final? Uh, these these various elements of it uh, for so that people kind of know what the timeline is from here. Right. So trial disclosure comment period closed in October, and so that has not been issued yet as a final policy. So that's been three months. Uh, the comment period on uh, no action and uh, and sandbox will close in February. So I guess you could extrapolate that that might take some time after it's closed to also finalized, so that could probably give people a, a rough idea of, uh, of uh, the time trajectory. Well, well, thank you, Paul. This is very exciting and very exciting for consumers uh, in, in the economy, and appreciate you taking on. And thank you to the panel for a fascinating and enlightening uh, discussion. I've learned a lot. I'm sure everybody else has. So thank you all for being here. So, Thank, thank you. you <clears throat>